So, good morning. We have a lot to cover here today. I want us to finish by noon, so... <laughs> no. Our verses today are Colossians 2, 6-23, and they deal with the specific dangers of the false teaching to which the Colossians were exposed. And Paul gives the Christian answer to them. For instance, speculative philosophy is to be avoided because it obscures the doctrine of Christ's fullness and his triumph over the powers of darkness. The Colossians are to reject fanciful teachings because at best they are but a shadow of what is real in Christ, and nothing should undermine the sole headship and power of Christ in the life of the believer. So let's delve into these more deeply under the headings of one, Paul's general exhortation, which we find in verse 6 and 7, the Colossians' error in verses 8 and 9, the sufficiency of Christ in verses 10 to 15, and the right understanding of Christian liberty in verses 16 to 23. And I'll read verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2 from the ESV if you'd like to follow along. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul's general exhortation to the Colossians and to us is to understand that to receive Christ is but the beginning. The follow-up is to walk in him, meaning to live in him. And he says this will involve four things, rootedness, progressive building, establishment in the faith, and thanksgiving. The therefore looks back to Paul's previous statement in verse 5 about the Christian's firm faith. Paul reminds the Colossians that they were not only taught things about Jesus Christ, they received a person, Christ the Lord, and it is in he in whom they believe. Understanding this should provide them with a sufficient safeguard against following any human tradition mentioned in verse 8. Christ must be the sphere of their spiritual growth and development. They are to live out their life in dependence on him only. Walking is a metaphor for the normal pattern of living, and you'll notice the use of the present tense suggests a continuous and steady movement. And to expand on this, Paul then provides illustrations of the developing Christian life. The first he gives is that of a growing plant. And Paul reminds the Colossians that they have sent their roots deep down into the truth that is Jesus Christ. The use of the Greek perfect participle of the verb to root suggests something which took place in the past, but which effects are still felt in the present. This means there is a continuous source of life for the growth of the Christian. Paul then changes the metaphor to that of an expanding building, and because the Colossians are built up in him, it is Christ who is the means by which the building is held together. He's the foundation, sometimes mentioned as a cornerstone. Both of these images are also found in 1 Corinthians 3.9. 
And then Paul reminds the Colossians that they are established in the faith, that body of revealed truth which they had been taught. So they should not only experience a continuous stability in the faith, but it should also lead them to overflow with gratitude to God. So number two, let's look now at the warning that follows in verses eight and nine. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And this section is where Paul addresses the heart of the false teaching. Though seemingly intellectual, The teaching is empty of real truth, and Paul bids the Colossians be vigilant. The literal meaning of the Greek here is to be careful that no one with specious argument of some kind leads you off as booty, that is, captive, away from the truth into the slavery of of error. Ever since verses 12 and 13 in chapter 1, Paul has been at pains to remind the Colossians and us that this darkness of error is something they've already been delivered from. Such a warning of spiritual retrogression appears often in the New Testament. In Romans 16:18, there is a warning against smooth talk and flattery. In Ephesians 5 and 6, it is against empty words. And here it is the empty deceit of humanistic philosophy. It is deceitful because its attractive presentation which seduces the minds of believers from the simplicity of their faith in Christ. The elemental spirits Paul mentions probably refer to the synchristic religious tendencies of that day associated with the physical elements, whereby angels, demons, and gods were personified forces of these. Whatever they were, these elemental spirits or powers were sufficiently personal to be regarded as holding men in subject and and demanding homage from them if men wished to approach God. And Paul has nothing good to say about them. The Colossians had already received Christ, and Christ has overcome all powers. Christ is the personal embodiment of the fullness of deity. So over against the bankruptcy of the spiritual powers, Paul sets the majesty of Christ as reflected in his divine fullness, that is, his divine essence. There it can be seen in him the very nature of God, the perfect image of the invisible God that Paul mentioned in Colossians 1.15. So in verses 10 to 15, Paul follows these words with more on the sufficiency of Christ and what it means to believers. So please follow along in your Bibles. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And I don't know of more powerful words in scripture than those. In this section, Paul gives the Christian answer to the Colossian heresy and any heresy that we might face in the future. In capsule form, it is that Christ is all-sufficient. He is more than enough. And I had been a Christian barely six years when I first studied this passage, and it was at Regent College in Vancouver in 1983. I was probably about 12 when (laughs) when I was required to write a paper on it. And I have a very vivid memory of sitting in a little cabin on Bowen Island attempting to translate this passage from the Greek and unpack the meaning of these incredible words. And they overwhelm me then and they still do to this day. And that's why I asked for this passage. So I'm grateful to be returning to these words with you all today. Since the very essence of God dwells in Christ... Paul insists this has profound implications for his people. We believers are in him by a spiritual union. Hence we share his filling and are partakers of the very nature of God. That is also addressed in Ephesians 3.19. This is an already accomplished fact for the believer and is being experienced continually Hence the use of the perfect participle here. Filled means brought to fullness or completion. So for the believer, as with Christ, it means filled to the full measure with spiritual understanding and knowledge of the love of Christ. It means for us there is a superabundant quality of life available to us. It is as the believer partakes of the life of God that he or she reaches spiritual completeness because man alone in every sense is incomplete without God. But united and incorporated in Christ, the believer finds himself joined as part of the body in a living bond under the headship of Christ who is sovereign over all things. It is an indissoluble unity. Thus, the Christian does not need to depend on religious ritual nor on angelic mediators or any other mediators in order to share in the fullness of God. Paul is anxious that the Colossians realize their full position in Christ. And the question for us always is, do we? And when we do, how does that play out in our lives? And maybe that's something we can talk about in small group. Then in verse 11, Paul somewhat abruptly introduces the theme of circumcision, which may suggest that there was some confusion on the subject in the church at Colossae. Quite possibly, the false teachers were making it a condition of salvation, as was the case among the Galatian churches. Paul is thinking of a new kind of circumcision, which he calls the circumcision of Christ. It has more to do with Jesus' passion, and the putting off of the body of the flesh, and includes the Christian baptism, which involves the stripping off of self, not in a physical sense, 
but of that which serves sin in preparation for putting on Christ in newness of life. And this is a circumcision made without hands, which means it is spiritual. It represents the true circumcision of Philippians 3.3, where Paul writes, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So the circumcision is us. And what does that mean? It is our foreskin of sin that has been removed. It is a circumcision of the heart, as Paul tells us in Romans 2.29. So why do we sometimes still try to put our confidence in the flesh? How important it is that we always help one another remember that by our very baptism, we have died to self and put on Christ. And that is what Paul is saying to the Colossians, that although the bodily circumcision of the Old Testament was a divinely given seal of membership of the covenant people, it was never merely an outward act. Now in Christ, there is no need for even the outward expression performed with hands. The inward cleansing associated with circumcision finds its fulfillment in Christ. And in Christ, the believer has been made a member of the new Israel, the covenant people. So Paul goes on in verses 12 to further elaborate the spiritual efficacy of baptism. How the believer is united with with Christ both in his death and his resurrection. And the efficacy of that external rite is dependent on the right approach. Baptism, which is death to self and resurrection to God, is only truly effective when one accepts incorporation in Christ, with Christ's resurrection life imparted to him. Buried with him, raised with him. That's our Christian mantra. Jesus had told his disciples, the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized, in Mark 10.39. But Paul believes the Colossians already enjoy the resurrection power of Christ. So he wants them to act on it, as he does us. And what does that look like when we do? Sherry Larson sent me a quote the other day that I think fits Christ, fits right here. Christ's resurrection gives new meaning to history. It reveals its meaning. History Transformed is no longer directed toward death, but towards transfiguration. All of history is rooted in the resurrection which opens our lives onto the future by transfiguring the past. And Paul wishes to draw attention to that transfiguration and transformation which has already taken place in the Colossians and in us. He contrasts their former conditions as Gentiles, when they were spiritually dead, with their present one of new life in and with Christ. The Gentiles were literally uncircumcised in contrast to the Jews who had the circumcision of the flesh. And this state called attention to the Gentiles' hopeless spiritual condition as strangers to the covenant people. But their spiritual renewal that God made alive together with Christ cannot be separated from the forgiveness of sins which springs from the free, unmerited grace of God who canceled their debt. 
Disuse of the aorist tense indicates that this act of pardoning has been done once and for all and exists as a continued pardon for God's people. Paul actually uses a succession of aorists throughout verses 11 to 20, indicating that Christ's work in our heart circumcision, death, burial, resurrection, and new life with him, together with his disarmament of rulers and authorities who he put to shame, have all been done once and for all. It is only for the Colossians and for us to believe it. In verse 14, Paul dwells on God's method of forgiveness when he refers to a record of debt, meaning a certificate of indebtedness which can translate as the law viewed as an instrument of condemnation because of failure to discharge its obligations. One commentator wrote that even the idea of such a record-keeping book kept by God in which were recorded all men's sins was a familiar one in the Old Testament times. The only way this debt could be canceled and set aside is by having Christ become the death warrant, which made up that statement of debt. Setting aside or removing something out of the midst is an idiomatic way of describing the removal of an obstacle, in this case the removal of that which hindered fellowship with God. God accomplished this obliteration by having lifted it up and nailed it to the cross. And interestingly, the word translated set aside literally means lifted up and is in the perfect tense, indicating an action done in the past, but which effect is still felt in the present. This is in contrast to the use of the aorist tense for nailed means an action done once for all. So this whole idea becomes more vivid in 1 Peter 2.24, where what is meant literally is that Christ himself carried up our sins in his body to the tree in order that in dying to our sins we might live to righteousness. It's a done deal which affects our life, though, on a daily basis. So what does this mean for the Colossians and for us? It means that since we are dead with Christ by baptism, and it is Christ who removed the debt against us, we are now discharged from the law, dead to that which bound us, and are now alive to serve, not under the old written code, but in new life of the Spirit. But that is not all. God not only used Christ on the cross to cancel the bond against us, He also used the cross to conquer all enemy spiritual powers. I don't think we talk enough about this today. In verse 15, Paul changes the metaphor again to a picture of a military victory where the triumphant leader has stripped off the clothing of his enemies and has led them publicly naked as captives in his victory march. In other words, God is stripped from the powers of evil their hold over our lives. That is, he disarmed them of all further opportunity to do harm. We know from Colossians 1.16 that all visible and invisible beings are within the sovereignty of Christ. And from Ephesians 6.12 that our conflict is not against flesh and blood, but against powers that oppose the authority of Christ. 
the evil powers would have presumed to take full advantage of a seemingly weak and helpless Jesus hanging on a cross. But God repelled any forthcoming attack by defeating and taking them captive publicly for all to see, especially all those rebellious powers. What Paul is at pains to say to the Colossians and to us is that whatever may be the appearances, evil powers have been triumphed over once and for all. That is in the heiress tense. And those in Christ are also victors over them with him. And I can assure you when any of us are actively engaged in putting our hearts and minds to following Christ, those powers, his and our enemies, will attempt to harass us. I'm sure many of us here know about that. But what we want to remember is they are in their death throes, so they flail about. But we have this knowledge to arm us that we are more than conquerors over them with Christ. So the last section concerns Christian liberty. And in the interest of time, I won't won't read verses 16 to 23 out loud. But they are the verses from which we get the bulk of our knowledge regarding the Colossian heresy. Paul is saying here that in view of Christ's triumph over all spiritual enemies, it would be foolish to allow anyone to pass judgment on one's activities as if salvation depended on the observation of certain food laws or sacred days or any such thing. Those things are only a shadow of what really belongs to the reality and substance of Christ. The Colossians should not allow themselves a new bondage to legalistic requirements. Furthermore, Paul is warning them that if they listen to those who are urging certain religious obligations as a way to salvation, they would be in danger of relying on their own efforts and not on Christ. So such ideas have the appearance of wisdom, but they are destined to perish because they are at best part of a temporary order of this world and certainly not of any value to countering fleshly indulgences. F.F. Bruce in a commentary has put it like this, Merely negative rules do not avail for the maintenance of the growth of Christian life. For life is not offered to our acceptance, it is offered to our acquisition. We know that the same temptations to legalism and religiosity are still present in the church today, and whenever we look in the world we will find something or someone seeking our homage in exchange for security. But the Bible tells us that our only safety is in Christ, who is already the victor over all things. There is nothing more for us to do but remain in him, which we could say that is to remain in love. This crucified and risen Christ to whom all the forces of the universe are subject is the same Christ whose love is poured out to and within those who are united to him who is the head, as Colossians 2.19 reminds us. It is he who enables the believer to enjoy perfect freedom through his victory on the cross, a freedom flowing out of a heart response to the prior love and grace of God. So let us pray. Dear Jesus, we earnestly ask the help of your Holy Spirit in keeping us always mindful of these powerful truths that your word proclaims. Amen.